Nazanin Shahrafi, Assistant Professor of Gender and Globalization here at the London School of Economics. We have come together today to join two incredible scholars, Dr. Eleni Santin Zalake and Dr. Arash Davari, to rethink revolution from Ethiopia to Iran and to query the legacies of revolutionary politics in our present, with particular focus on the current protests in Iran. This is also the topic of a subject of a special volume the two have co-edited, which I highly recommend to our audience. And uh, we can share the um, link to that volume um, after the event with all of you. The, this event will last for an hour, splitting the time between remarks from our speakers and Q&A with the audience. If you have questions for the speakers, please type them into the Q&A box and not the chat box. We, uh, you can see it at the bottom of your Zoom um, uh, screen. We encourage a vibrant conversation, but there will be no tolerance for spamming or insults. Please also note that this event is being recorded. Um, so without further ado, um, allow me to introduce our distinguished speakers by the order of appearance. Dr. Arash Dovari is assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, his writings have appeared in political theory, comparative studies of South Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, and radical philosophy, among other venues. His first book manuscript reappraises debates in political theory about self-determination, revolution, and the extraordinary through reconstruction of the discursive conditions that made the 1979 revolution in Iran possible. Next, we have Dr. Eleni Zalake who is an assistant professor of African studies in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian and Africa studies, African studies at Columbia University. She is the author of Ethiopia in Theory, Revolution and Knowledge Production between 1964 to 2016. Her current project examines the ongoing civil war in Ethiopia in relation to the history of black political thought. I will now give the floor to our speakers who have planned to kind of speak for 10 to 15 minutes each and then followed by a conversation between them. Arash, please. Thank you so much, Nazanin, for this invitation. I'm very, very excited to be here in conversation with you all, um, and especially with my dear colleague, Eleni Santim Zalaka. Um, I would like to begin perhaps with a couple of disclaimers. One of them uh, is that um, there have been a number of teachings in the past 45 or so days about events in Iran, and I am not in any position to approach this conversation in the manner of a teaching where I would be teaching you about what is happening. Um, so I will, if that is the expectation, I will fail to deliver on that score. Instead, what I think I can offer are questions, and my hope is that we can have a conversation that is genuinely and truly searching. So my comments will be um, directed towards formulating questions for a shared conversation that hopefully extends beyond the session. Um, the second thing that I'd like to say is that the advertisement for the event outlines, I think, three tasks, which um, maybe too much for one hour. So I just want to note what those tasks are um, as a way to give you a sense of the organization of my remarks. One of them is to introduce the special issue, Third World Historical Rethinking Revolution from Ethiopia to Iran, which was published in August of 2022. Um, so that could be an event onto itself. The second is to speak um, with some degree of coherence to the crisis and protests and movement that is ongoing in Iran. That could be an event unto itself. And the third is to extend the themes in the special issue uh, based off of, excuse me, recent events, um, which again could be an event unto itself. So with that in mind, um, I will try to do all three, um, but I think that I will fall short and um, I hope that the conversation continues beyond this session. Okay, so third world historical. So third world historical began uh, as an attempt to rethink the category of revolution through a comparative conversation between Ethiopia and Iran, the sites of research um, that uh, our respective sites of research. It can be said that our project poses four interrelated questions, and I would like to touch upon these questions over the course of my remarks. Each of the questions has a similar structure. One, what is the relationship between thought and action? Two, what is the relationship between anti-authoritarianism and anti-imperialism? Three, what is the relationship between past and present? 
for what is the relationship between form and content. Now, our introduction to the journal issue begins with an acknowledgement of changing circumstances in Ethiopia and Iran over the past four years. In the Iranian case, uh, when we started working on the project in 2018, possibilities for reform within the Islamic Republic, which had shaped activism in Iran and knowledge production about Iran in some shape or form since at least 1997, had demonstrably closed. The current revolutionary movement in Iran is the loudest and clearest expression of the extent to which circumstances have changed. I'm calling it a movement and not a revolution out of care for circumstances on the ground, but I think it's fair to describe the movement as revolutionary insofar as the Islamic Republic is facing a crisis of legitimacy following the death of Jina Mahsa Amini. So with respect to question one on the relationship between thought and action, what is the role or the task of the quote unquote intellectual under these kinds of circumstances, not just, but especially one at a geographic remove? I use the phrase intellectual deliberately because we have seen expressions of anti-intellectualism among certain professed revolutionaries uh, who are Iranians abroad. Alongside longer standing critiques of reformists in Iran and diasporic political organizations associated with reformists, there have also been attacks against academics, scholars, journalists, and intellectuals. I think we miss something important if we simply discredit or dismiss these attacks. That some people have actively embraced anti-intellectualism can actually teach us something about the conditions preceding this movement and perhaps uh, give us some indication of a possible path forward. So let's analyze the attacks or at least um, think about them. The intellectual, the academic, the writer is well-trained in nuance, perhaps too well-trained. And nuance has been associated with two positions against which people have mobilized. On the one hand, calls for nuance evoke reformist politicians who have never ceased to say that matters are more complicated in Iran that there's always space for social change within the parameters of the Islamic Republic, but who have failed to deliver much substantial change, especially since 2017. On the other hand, and perhaps ironically, calls for nuance also appear among anti-imperialists, certain anti-imperialists, invested in a kind of regional politics for whom Iran is a central cog in the axis of resistance comprised of states that adopt foreign policies opposed to Israel and the United States. They are quick to nuance revolutionary fervor in a place like Iran, pointing out that foreign, uh, pointing out, pointing to, excuse me, foreign powers who cynically and selectively stoke these movements in order to de destabilize the Islamic Republic. It would make sense then to presume that those calling for radical or revolutionary change in Iran are not simply natural enemies of nuance, or uh, at least we should understand why they distrust it. From this perspective, the current revolutionary movement is revolutionary because it is calling for a complete rupture from the past, a break, a discontinuity. One is either for or against the Islamic Republic, there is no middle ground. But while certain pretensions to nuance have worked to defend, justify, and maintain the Islamic Republic, nuance can also work to undermine and challenge the Islamic Republic. One can articulate nuance in service of a revolutionary movement, if not to advance it, then at least to think with it. This brings us to question two about the relationship between anti-authoritarianism and anti-imperialism. Our introduction to the special issue, Third World Historical, offers a framework to critique uh, with which to critique uh, authoritarianism in third world states from a position committed to anti-imperialism. As I read it, we ask the following questions. How do existing concepts of anti-imperialism foreclose a critique of authoritarianism? Is it possible to reconceive anti-imperialism toward a vision of anti-authoritarianism? The goal here is to avoid separating anti-imperialism from anti-authoritarianism, a separation that can work to justify state violence in post-colonial states. To do so, we would need to think about questions of form and not pretend that politics boils down solely to institutions and states. Formally speaking, the authoritarian state with pretensions to anti-imperialism, a state like the Islamic Republic, exercises a kind of instrumentalist means ends thinking that assumes time is linear and serial. How one achieves an objective presumably doesn't matter as long as the desired outcome is secured. This kind of thinking can facilitate apologia for mass state violence, 
justified for the sake of an for the sake of an ideal arrangement in the future, even though we never seem to reach the promised land. If we're to talk about Iran's regional presence, violence against its own citizens doesn't concern anti-imperialists who are pleased with what the Iranian state does to advance the liberation of Palestine, for instance. Many find the effects of instrumentalist means ends thinking disgusting and abhorrent as I think we should, but far fewer challenge the linear serial concept of time that makes this kind of thinking possible. In some parts of the conversations about a revolutionary change in Iran today, we see a linear and serial concept of time with respect to the past and the present, which recalls, which brings me to the third question that I listed at the outset. From this perspective, revolution means we must extricate and separate ourselves from everything that has happened in the past 43 years. Revolution is a break, a rupture, a pure moment of discontinuity, presuming that complete separation is in fact feasible. A version of this thinking happens when the movement is understood in terms of generational differences. That is, it belongs to Gen Z, people, primarily women in the age range between 15 and 25, who are not only standing up to men over the age of 80, but who are also unlike any generation that came before. That's one narrative about the events. From this perspective, while 2022 doesn't seem to refer to the past in terms of content, the substance of the 1979 revolution, its Islamic aspects are, are certainly absent. There are resemblances in form insofar as both movements, 1979 and 2022, at least have the pretense to break with the past. The question we ask in our introduction to the journal issue, inspired by one of our contributors, Toshif Kara, who I think is actually is in, in attendance, is whether it's possible to suspend expectations about the future and not relinquish aspirations for the absolutely new. Is a different relationship between past and present possible? Can revolution propose an entirely new political formation, a break, a rupture, a discontinuity, by collapsing the distinction between past and present, instead of trying to keep the past separate from the present, policing the division between the two at all costs. So one vision of revolution would deny everything from the past 43 years in Iran, but this denial as an action at a formal level resembles perhaps the very thing it claims to deny. That is the actions at a formal level of the 1979 revolution, which denied everything that came before it, or at least some aspect of that event tried to do so. There's continuity then between 1979 and 2022 in the expressed desire for discontinuity. 2022 repeats the same concept of revolution in this regard. It just fills it with different content. There is a different, so that's one vision. There is a different vision of revolution, I think, that would involve a different approach at a formal level in terms of action. It would involve, uh, it would then author a different concept of revolution. I think we see one possibility for this in how the current movement actually combines continuity and discontinuity, the ordinary and the extraordinary. And I think there's a really nice articulation of this in an interview with Fatemi Sadiri. Mundane acts, the stuff of ordinary life, like women going about their everyday lives in public without wearing a veil, suddenly become extraordinary. But for this to hold water as something new and revolutionary, it would need to go beyond a yearning and a desire to copy the liberal models that only exist in the global north on the basis of economic hierarchies that continue to separate the global north from the rest of the world, bringing us back to the topic of anti-imperialism. One of the remarkable things about the current movement in Iran is its emphasis on specificity, which puts it at odds with the serial logic of the state's anti-imperialist arguments, according to which domestic problems in Iran have been deemed secondary or subsidiary to larger geopolitical concerns. The message has been don't protest too much because it might leave the country vulnerable, vulnerable to foreign meddling and intervention. We're witnessing, in contrast to that, a leap of faith that emphasizes conditions in Iran regardless of the consequences implied by these broader narratives. This is both exciting and, as with any leap of faith, risky. The reality is that there are very large and powerful interests trying to steer these protests in a certain direction. Furthermore, the past 10 years have shown us that popular movements in the region can be undermined to devastating effect. 
Finally, specificity can slip into nationalist exceptionalism. We've already seen aspects of this on both sides. One dissident narrative says Islam is an imposition that must be removed. And then on the other side, a pro-state narrative talks about defending Iran against sectarian forces and the disillusion of the state, which is again an articulation of nationalism. So then I think the question becomes whether or not it's possible to think about specificity that does not slide into nationalist exceptionalism. Is it possible to hold specificity and solidarity together at once in the, same, in, the, in the same way that one might hold continuity and discontinuity together at once? So far, initiatives in Iran have, uh, have surprised everyone on a nearly daily basis. They seem to stay specific, defying attempts to impose any narrative on them. So then a final question to ask is whether this level of popular experimentation is enough to sustain a revolutionary movement, or does the, need, does the movement also need a vision for institutional experimentation if it is to at some point establish a new kind of political community? This brings us back to the question of continuity in a different way, which I hope will lead into my colleagues' remarks. What is the relationship between the experimentation of a popular movement in 2018 in Ethiopia or 2022 in Iran and the histories of institutional experimentation that characterize post-revolutionary third world states in Ethiopia and Iran? Thank you so much for your time and for the invitation. I look forward to the conversation. Um, I have my own questions and comments, but I will wait uh, for Eleni to kind of share her remarks and then I'll come in. Eleni. That was, sure, that was excellent, Arash. Uh, um, it's a great way to frame uh, what Third World Historical as a project has been for both of us, but also I think leads really nicely into my remarks. Um, again, thank you to everybody who's in the audience today for coming. Um, thank you for the invitation to speak today. Um, and I'm just going to launch into my remarks rather than, you know, dwell on niceties because I, I feel like time is running out. So I'm just going to get into it. So I'm going to center my remarks um, today around the civil war in Ethiopia. There's an ongoing civil war in Ethiopia that started in November 4th of 2020. Um, and I think I wanted to do this because I think third world historical as a research project really comes out of that civil war and me trying to think through what that civil war means. It's fundamentally changed me as a thinker and academic. Um, it ch has changed the kinds of questions I ask about Ethiopia, but also about the third world as a kind of historical movement. Um, I think the personal stakes of what it means to be an academic has changed for me, um, mostly because I think that there has been very few thinkers around me that have had anything useful to say or insightful to say about this war that has killed upwards of something like 500,000 people. Um, and it makes me think that if we have nothing to say about a war that's actually bigger than the war in Yemen or bigger than the war in um, the Ukraine, then we must be asking all the wrong questions. Um, so to pro provide some context, uh, let me say that most of the analysis about the ongoing war in Ethiopia assumes that the U.S. is the only actor that matters. I think this links back to some of the questions about anti-imperialism that Arash was um, talking about. So left out of the story of the civil war in Ethiopia is the involvement of Eritrea, which is a country north of Ethiopia, but also the involvement of the Gulf states, the UAE and um, uh, the Saudis as well as the use of Turkish and Iranian drones. So everybody is actually involved in this war. And so that's a really puzzling as well. People who are actually supposed to be enemies are actually very active in supporting the Ethiopian state in this war. Um, so part of what my research has turned to these days is to, to try and understand why the US is seen as the only actor um, in this war and how this myopic view has been developed because the anti-imperialist take on the war is that this is some kind, that the state's position on the war is some kind of anti-imperialist position and we have to support the Ethiopian state and state sovereignty and independence um, no matter what. So, um, and yet they're not taking into account all of the actors who are participating in this war. So, and, and I guess part of the question for me is that since this war has such a large you know, amount of victims, civilians and soldiers both, um, 
why why have we had why do we have such disregard for the victims of this war particularly since there is a siege on the northern on, on the Tigray region of Ethiopia um, which means that people are also subject to lack of telecommunications banking services uh, access to food and one could say in many reports human rights reports have said that starvation is actually a weapon of war here so but by thinking about the civil war in Ethiopia, I don't want to slip into this kind of nationalist exceptionalism that Arash was talking about. I actually think that the Ethiopian case can help us to think about, a, uh, help us build a comparative framework to think about sort of what is happening in the third world more generally. So I want to get into the specificity of the Ethiopian case in order to move back out. Um, so to get into some specificities, I just want to say that from 1991 until 2018, Ethiopia was governed by the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. Um, and I would characterize the EPRDF as a political experiment that devolved power to regional authorities, often in the name of granting autonomy to the numerous nations, nationalities, and peoples that lived in Ethiopia. So the EPRDF was well known for building a developmental state, that produced impressive economic results while also improving basic social indicators. However, the EPRDF was also known as an, a liberal regime. I will say that those who accused the EPRDF of being an illiberal regime are many of the people who now have access to the levers of power and the levers of the state now. So take what you may of that um, claim, given the war that th those are some of the people who are persecuting the war right now. Um, but I think one thing I want to point out here is that it should be noted that in formal parlance under the EPRDF, the people do not talk about ethnicity. They talk about nations and nationalities and peoples. And I think that tells you something about EPRDF and the kind of leftist tradition it was working out of, because that language of nation, nationalities and peoples clearly comes out of a kind of Soviet tradition and a leftist, leftist tradition that is trying to think about diversity um, in a modern context and how to manage diversity. Um, all right, so the EPRDF experiment falls apart in 2018. You have lots of news reports and they're filled with stories about the inevitability of the fall of an authoritarian regime. And you know the popularity of the fall of this regime is so much so that the, the new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, who comes out of this kind of uh, process of the experiment falling apart, he's given a Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. Um, but rather, or what we can say is that instead of ushering in a kind of reformed liberal democratic order, several civil wars broke out throughout the country, specifically in the Aroma region and the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Most significantly during this period, sort of between the election of, well, Abiy Ahmed was actually not elected until uh, 2020, but he was the head, he was first nominated as the head of EPRDF, and then he fo formed his own political party, the Prosperity Party, in 2019. So between the period of 2020 and 2022, there has been a civil war in Tigray um, I, that I just want to emphasize is quite a large war, um, and that um, more soldiers have been deployed and killed and more civilian lives lost than in the Ukraine or Yemen. So interestingly, the events of 2018 that are responsible for the rise of the new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, was precipitated by a large-scale anti-government, a set of large-scale anti-government protests that happened between 2014 and 2016. And they were organized around issues such as access to land, farmland in particular, the growth of commercial agriculture, and the right to ethnic self-determination. These protests primarily occurred in the Aroma region of Ethiopia and were organized by activists who specifically claimed that land was being expropriated from the Aroma present in the peri-urban areas of the capital city of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. So these protests occurred between 2014 and 2016, and they never really disappeared. But what we saw instead was that these protests were quelled by a reform movement within the state itself. And this is what eventually led to the election of Abiy Ahmed as prime minister. Um, his election, his nomination to the EPRDF should not be read as a new chapter of 
democratic openings or political openings, but it's an attempt, I think, or I, as I read it, it was an attempt to manage dissent through reforms of the state. Um, so what that reforms meant first for the EPRDF and then later for Abiy Ahmed's new political party, the Prosperity Party, is that Abiy Ahmed really saw himself as distinct from kind of the leftist tradition within the EPRDF um, and was um, interested in sort of instituting a pro-privatization agenda along with an attempt to attract FDI. And in particular, he was much more open to kind of pro-democracy organizations from the US now, work, now working in Ethiopia and that had previously been rebuffed by the EPRDF. Um, this is a, an interesting kind of move on the part of Abiy Ahmed, who was from the Oromo region and who was supposedly nominated to answer the questions of the Oromo social protest. But what we see here is that Abiy Ahmed is actually pivoting away from the social and economic demands of the protesters in whose name reform was actually sought. So there's an interesting sort of contradiction there. And I think that the contradictions between economic reform, liberalization, and social protest is partially what led to the fragmentation of political consensus across the country and to the outbreak of civil wars across the Oromo and Tigray regions of Ethiopia. Um, <clears throat> hopefully, as I, again, as I speak about the specificity of this case, we can start to think about parallels in other places. So for me, what is important to acknowledge here is that getting rid of EPR, our, the EPRDF was supported by the international community in order to bring something more liberal to Ethiopia. At the same time, I would say that, you know, since the end of World War II, the EPRDF was probably the only regime in Ethiopia that meaningfully improved, you know, basic social indicators such that, you know, sustain life, such as mass primary education, access to mass primary education, access to healthcare, reducing child mortality, increasing agricultural productivity for smallholder farmers, and, you know, doing a lot of building of roads um, in the countryside. Um, and so I think what's interesting about the Aroma protest is that it actually was based on an imminent criticism of EPRDF in terms of it not doing enough for, for um, smallholder farmers, right? Um, so it wasn't necessarily a kind of break from at least the leftist rhetoric of the EPRDF. And yet um, the, those protests were co-opted for regime change and liberalization in which the result was that the development indicators have been now reduced and war has broken out in all regions of the country and nearly all regions of the country. <clears throat> so yes, we can say that war kills, but another type of international accountability would have to ask why EPRDF was the only success, successful regime to address poverty in Ethiopia. For moreover, what are the political cleavages that prevent people from addressing poverty in Ethiopia today? And why were those political forces allowed to flourish in the post-2018 period? Lastly, I think the events of the day lead us back to the question of what kind of political collectivity can be forged in the region today where questions of economic equity can be addressed. As mentioned before, periods of EPRDF rule can be characterized by this institutional experimentation that Arash had mentioned but in this case, what we're experimenting with is pro-poor development policy for an agrarian society. And I wanna emphasize that I do think that this takes creativity and imagination, knowledge of internal and external sort of limits, and it takes consideration of the possible. Alternatively, there is a claim that 27 years of EPRDF rule is what inevitably led to massive and violent resentment against ethnic Tigrayans, since EPRDF was said to be dominated by ethnic Tigrayans. Hence the popularity of the war on Tigrites, sort of like revenge on 27 years of EPRDF rule. I think this is a bit reductionist. I think hate has to be taught and the language of resentment has to be learned. So where does one learn that language of resentment? Where does hate, be, how does one learn the language of hate? Um, as I see it, the popularity of the war in Tigray scapegoats an entire geopolitical economic situation onto one group of people and one part of one political party, but offers no solution except the elimination of a perceived evil force. So the elimination of a scapegoat. Um, the elimination of the perceived evil force was actually the regime change that led to Abiy Ahmed's 
you know, prime ministership. Today, however, few actors in the Ethiopian political space have the patience or the wisdom to have an honest conversation about the complicated process of building pro-poor democratic institutions in an agrarian society. And they have very patient, very little patience or wisdom to think about what that, you know, these democratic institutions would entail in terms of negotiation and compromise with internal and external actors. So I think what happens, what has happened in Ethiopia is exemplary for Africa. It's about the dismemberment of a left of center project, the creation of a state that is willing to implement the crudest forms of neoliberal policy. And it's about the destruction of a party and a population that is connected to an alternative. But because African politics is talked about solely in terms of big man politics and framed as, as authoritarian, the solution is always to liberalize. Indeed, as discussed already, the foundational political problem in Ethiopia since 2018 has been articulated as liberalization. And yet the foundational conceit has compounded Ethiopia's problems tenfold by giving life to, nef to nefarious social forces um, that has parcelized economic and even military sovereignty to a number of different actors um, where there is very little or zero democratic accountability. Given this, given and given my previous work on revolution in Ethiopia, the events since 2018 have that, that led to a civil war have provoked a series of questions about political community in the broader Horn of Africa region. I asked three related questions. First, why was it both pop why was it that both the popular and academic literature from the years 1991 to 2018 were, were sort of unable to apprehend what constituted a genuine political experiment in Ethiopia, one that attempted to address real problems on the ground? Um, and second, how does the substitution of complex for hackneyed analysis work to undermine genuine political experiments in Africa, given you know, their warts, problems and all? Lastly, I, I think that a real question for me is there's a kind of nostalgia now for, this, for that political experiment in Ethiopia. And why do we become nostalgic for those political experiences only after they've been, den den they've been denuded of all possibility? And it reminds me of the way people are nostalgic for blues or jazz, or for that matter, most examples of black creativity. Um, well, you know, this also begs more questions. How do we think the events of the civil war in Ethiopia alongside third world internationalism? This seems important to me because third worldists Today, people like you know Vijay Prashad have supported the um, war in Ethiopia or the Abiy Ahmed government in the name of a certain kind of anti-imperialism, um, and that seems rather crude to me. Um, if one, it seems to me that if one was to do an anti-imperialist critique of the Ethiopian crisis, what needs to be analyzed is actually a kind of new configuration where you have um, a new elite forming. You have new ideas and policies, but you also have, you know, the proliferation of local militias um, and paramilitary forces. And how do all of these things link up together? How, do, how does neoliberal policy, how does this new elite, how does the proliferation of militias and, and paramilitary forces, how do they all link up together? Um, and I don't think this kind of emphasis on an anti-imperialism that is looking just at state sovereignty and takes the nation state for granted, is what is, ne is needed today. That seems to be for a bygone era. Um, so, so just to circle back then, I think that what we have today, if we have forever wars today, we also have forever chaos zones where there is no political vision and no experiment. At best we have imitation and longing for the West as the political demand. But here's the thing, the, the Ethiopian state doesn't mind the chaos zone. They too have given up on political on the political project of experimentation or visioning something large that is on behalf of people in a democratic sense, and then experimenting with the meaning of democracy. Um, I think they're it, they're simply interested in managing chaos for the sake of doing business. So I would describe the state as a kind of security state. It's a security apparatus, you know. Um, so Iran sells Ethiopia drones in a war that is more or less backed by the US and the UAE and the Saudis and 
And you ask how this makes sense, but how does Yemen even make sense? I can only think of the term parcelized sovereignty, which enables a kind of mad and chaotic business activity that we barely can grasp. Who is making money in this business world? Trading what? Trading livestock, minerals, people, technology, drones? How do we even follow the money here? It seems we absolutely lack the rigorous theoretical concepts for this kind of vampire capitalism that's run amok and that's led to social disintegration. What if, you know, and so the, I guess my question is, is what if these fragmented spaces of predatory accumulation um, directly connect to global capitalism without much mediation by, by the nation state? What is this form of late capitalism? And, you know, what, what if the state has already ceded sovereignty and is merely acting as a security company? Who are we then to fight? And what does it mean to build democratic Con, uh, democratic institutions in this context. All right, that was a lot. I had other things to say, but I think I'll end there. I, I was gonna maybe connect back to this question of linear time and progress. Um, and funny, Lenny, please. Is there? Um, so I, just to say that I don't want to embrace a progressive politics that sees history as a linear forward movement. Um, it seems to me that this insistence on a forward thrust of history can ultimately lead to an instrumental relationship to the future and a capacity to turn a blind eye to the violence in the present for the sake of building a better tomorrow. By contrast, I'm interested in what happens when we turn our backs on progress. If we let go of a willingness to move forward without regard for consequences, can we reorient ourselves both to anti-imperialism and nonviolence in a different way? Can this in turn allow for something truly new to erupt? So I think I'll just end there. Yeah. All right. I hope I made sense. I hope I didn't talk too quickly. Um, I hope people could follow what I was saying, but Arach or whoever wants to talk, I'm done. Thank you. Thank you, Eleni. You were great and eloquent as always. Um, Arashan, I have some uh, questions and a couple of comments, but do you want to continue the conversation with Eleni? Because I know you've, you two have worked together and connect the two cases more and maybe bring in Iran more, and then I will. Come. Yeah, I, I, I want to um, <clears throat> ask Eleni to elaborate on one point, um, which I think you, you said in your comments, and I just want to get some clarity on it. In, by connecting it to our, our co-authored piece. So one of the things that we do in the co-authored piece is that we attempt to push against conversations about anti-imperialism that don't take seriously um, questions of authoritarianism. And we have this, you know, this move we make using Walter Benjamin, who talks about liberalism and fascism, we try to say there's a different category of analysis when it comes to the third world, which is authoritarianism. We have to think about it seriously. Um, so there's this effort in, in the, the written form to think about anti-imperialism and anti-authoritarianism in a serious fashion. And in your comments um, at some point, you said this emphasis on authoritarianism when it comes to Africa and the African continent has led people to the conclusion that all analysis of politics boils down to liberalism, right? How can we counter authoritarianism? So then how do you, um, if that's the framework that you're trying to push against, that second thing, how then do you find space to think about anti-authoritarianism in a serious way and in a different way? Um, and I think the, the reason why I'm asking that question is in a you know kind of comparative um, with with a comparative hope because I think the Vijay Prashad example or the fact that Iran is selling drones to Ethiopia and the U.S. is supporting Ethiopia that makes this particular case truly world historical. I mean, we can see all of the forces at play here in this war. Um, and we can hopefully out of that madness, find some other alternative space for thought. And so I'm wondering if you can elaborate that aspect, the specificity to the, to the general um, through a conversation about how you're thinking about anti-authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, if, to just go back to Benjamin for a second, the comparison between fascism and communism is a kind of false comparison. Um, I wonder if what I'm saying is that 
um, if we just take a, 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 a brush stroke to every single regime, every single political project in the third world and, and taint it as authoritarianism, um, I wonder if we don't think about specificity, right? Um, and so th that dichotomy in a sense that Benjamin sets up between fascism and communism is a false dichotomy. Um, the, the dichotomy between liberalism and every, everything else that has existed in Africa as authoritarianism is a kind of false dichotomy as well, right? Like surely people have protested, they have ideas, they've made policy, they've thought about things. And um, so I, I suppose part of what I'm saying in the case of EPRDF is that there's, there was a false dichotomy that, that led to a kind of hackneyed analysis, right? And that hackneyed analysis actually undermined the kinds of pro-poor policies that was being experimented with in Ethiopia. So nobody, I mean, some, I mean, Ethiopia was celebrated for 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 a few decades. There it was like going. It was like the developmental state in Ethiopia was a thing. It was something to be imitated. Everybody, you know, all the kind of, you know, you know, there was a lot of lauding of the kind of um, economic policies that were coming out of Ethiopia. At the same time, there was always this kind of language of um, the developmental state is is you know not the liberal state, and therefore it is anti. It is you know, anti-democratic by its very nature. Um, so there, there was that kind of hacking and analysis that wasn't really looking at, you know, what it meant to, to, to think about um, development in an agrarian society. Um, and so that reduction to authoritarianism was problematic. What is interesting for me today is the ways in which, um, uh, we because I mean all the people that were claiming that Ethiopia was authoritarian under EPRDF are, like I said many of those people actually hold the levers of power today but because they're moving Ethiopia into this kind of you know liberal you know economic reform thing we don't call them on their authoritarianism anymore or their anti-democratic nature which is fascinating to me so they get away with murder literally <laughs> anyways um yeah i hope that answered your question mm -hmm. i'm gonna come in um thank you lenny so we have two questions and i'm gonna scrap my comments i have one question as well first of all i think this was i don't know this appeared to me to be an intellectual endeavor here to theorize anti-intellectualism or maybe this was also further evidence to uh to why anti-intellectualism is happening because I think both of you started by talking about kind of the failure of Eleni. You started your talk by saying how when the war broke out, you kind of felt that there was the, uh, the concepts that are available to you um, were not enough to understand. Or you both questioned kind of the kinds of concepts and theories that have been available to make sense of revolutions or wars. Both of you and also me and I'm sure many other in the academic community have, co have been constantly rethinking their position within the academic field vis-a-vis -vis the revolutions and the wars that are happening. So I actually wanted to kind of push us to think more about that than what is this possibility because for a long time in the academic community we were also kind of struggling to bridge the gap between acad um, you know, academia and activist field. Um, are we kind of moving further away from that? Is there a possibility? Um, I had a question also. I wanted to highlight um, one thing because thinking about the questions that both of you raised, both in the edited volume, but also here, I was trying to think about what are the, the concrete examples of, or what possibilities open up, uh, concrete possibilities if we take your questions and insights seriously. And I, I, I know I've been referring to this statement in many of my talks recently, but I wanna highlight it here just because it's being recorded. And I wonder what you guys think about this. There was a statement, and this kind of captures both this specificity and generality, but also uh, moving away from this methodological nationalism. There was a statement by the Sudanese No to the Operation of Women Collective which I really appreciated. It was a statement that was offered in solidarity to women of Iran. And what I liked about that statement was that they placed Mahsa Jina Amini next to Audia Ajabna and Nadia Sabun, who were killed by the public order police in Sudan. 
And what I always say is that they effectively planted the seed of a shared history of, of, of oppression and struggle and shattering the borders that separated the suffering of the Iran, of Iranian and Sudanese women's bodies. So this, this I thought was a concrete example of expressing some sort of solidarity that yes, the morality police in Iran has its own specific history. It's a, it's a particular type of police, just as the public order police in Sudanese, yet we can think about the victims. On, on, on a similar line. Um, the reason I think this is important, that the, my question then for you is that it seems that we've achieved this at the level of discourse, but what are the institutional, the material kind of equivalent of these things? Because the states and the dominant powers have the, you know, they have the institutions, but um, do you see a possibility of us moving towards that? You can think about my question. I'm going to read two other questions as well, and then you can kind of select which one to start with. Um, there's a question for Arash um, by Alia Saidi. Um, thanking you, of course. So the question is about the difference of um, the recent uh, protests in Iran uh, with the previous ones. Uh, especially the post-election or the green movement um, protests where people were asking, where is my vote? Um, and then there is a question about, I think for Eleni, it's about where do you think the nostalgia for political experiments come from, comes from? And if you can elaborate on that, I'll get to the third question after you've got a chance to respond to these uh, questions. Uh, Eleni, you're muted. Ah, um, Aris, do you want to go ahead? Or I feel like I've talked sure. quite a bit. So. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think um, others have said it better than I, uh, but that the current protests are distinct from 2009 insofar as, as the questioner themselves uh, indicates, 2009, the demand was, where is my vote? It was for inclusion within the existing framework. Um, the kinds of slogans that we are seeing now are calling for a fundamental change to the state. Um, so there's a crisis of legitimacy with respect to the structure of the state, as opposed to trying to uh, create change within those structures. Um, and so what I was trying to highlight was uh, how, you know, what I was trying to do was to raise questions about how we think about rupture uh, now that the demand is for rupture um, and whether or not um, we would actually be able to imagine a more profound rupture if we imagine continuity and discontinuity together. Um, in terms of your points, Nazanin, I don't know if this will answer it, but um, I'm wondering if one of the paradigm shifts uh, that we are faced with given recent events um, requires us to reconsider a common move in knowledge production, at least about Iran, which is, um, I am there, therefore I know. So I have done uh, ethnographic field work. I've gotten access to this place that many researchers cannot get access to. I have intimate on the ground experience, and this is what the people want. Therefore, I am going to repeat and advance those claims with authority. Um, I think what we're seeing is um, that for a while now, one of the arguments was that what the people want is not war, is not sanctions, they want reform. And then now the people are saying they want something else. And um, a bunch of people who had previously been outside of the country who were deemed detached are saying, no, see, now what the people want is the fall of the Islamic Republic. And those of you who said the other thing that you know the people wanted reform are wrong and are apologists and so forth. And <laughs> we have competing narratives of what the people want but we don't actually have any questioning of that framework of knowledge production, which is that I can produce authoritative knowledge by, by virtue of access of uh, who the people are representing the people directly um, over there. And I think that brings up a question about um, what it means to be here and what it means to be there uh, and whether or not we can think more creatively about the difference between here and there. And I'll actually formulate this now as a question for Eleni, which is that in Ethiopian theory, you begin with a conversation about knowledge production and about your body and about um, what it means for you to write about Ethiopia and where Ethiopia is located. Um, you don't have to answer that question, but I think there are lessons there for rethinking uh, this kind of sensibility towards uh, knowledge production 
uh, as circumstances change in the Iranian context. Okay, sure. I mean, so I do use my body as a way to think about revolution in Ethiopia. Um, one of the things that I always wrote about my project Ethiopian theory was who will teach a black girl how to think about Africa. Um, and I really felt that, um, and, and the, 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 the line after that, who will teach a black girl how to think about Africa? You know, and I think I said something like, you know, given my body is the crystallization of historical forces that have made my body into a kind of fetish, world historical forces that have made my body into a kind of fetish. So my blackness is a kind of fetish. That means that I experience the world in a particular way, but where it also means that people have very limit, have limitations on, on the kinds of conversations they want to have with me or the ways that they want to teach me about what it means to be a black girl in Africa. Right. And so my sense was that I had inherited a revolution and a set of experiences that I was going to work through in the book, right? And that, you know, that nobody could take away that, that set of experiences or even take away the ways in which historical forces were playing out in my body and my body is as fetish in many ways, right? Um, so on some levels, I was doing this high theory in Ethiopian theory, but it was also a deeply personal project of working through the ways in which these, the kind of world historical forces actually pass through my body, right? And I make that claim that all of this high theory, all of this like, you know, ways in which I'm looking at the history of political thought in Ethiopia is a way to figure out like, who am I in this world? And how did the world shape me, right? And, and that, is, that, that is not a question of whether I'm here or there, right? Um, and, and, and that obviously who I am in the world is part of a shared experience as well. Right. So I just took myself very seriously, but not myself as like an individual, but my sense, but myself as somebody who had embodied a set of relationships that I can then talk about as, as having a history. Right. Um, so that is how I escape that kind of dichotomy between, oh, well, she's like, you know, in the Western university and, you know, is she really, you know, authentically Ethiopian, I just thought that was like not a particularly useful conversation for locating who I am and what my political experience is in the world. So I hope that maybe helps you a little bit. Um, well, I'm sorry, can I come in? Because there's a question that ties very well to what you said, and then we can go back to the previous questions in the last five minutes. But the question is about the role of, it's actually for both of you, but it builds well on what you were saying, the role of the Iranian and Ethiopian diaspora in, the, in these revolutions. So I think it kind of relates to what you were saying. I wanted to throw it out there. Sure. There's so many questions. My goodness. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to get into the thing about nostalgia for a moment because I had talked about nostalgia, I think, um, and the ways in which we, we become nostalgic for things that Black people produce only after they have their meaningfulness has passed or um, their power to disrupt or this, the, the, their revolutionary potential potentiality has, has passed. Um, and I think that's, you know, true of, of things like jazz, which comes out of a particular social experience um, or blues or state, particular kinds of statecraft, which I think should be understood as part of what it means to be a, um, a creative human being, right? Um, there is something called institutional creativity. And I think we need to think more about that. We think about creativity only in terms of like aesthetics, but I think something like healthcare and the NHS is part of like the history of human creativity. And we need to seriously think about what that means. So um, nostalgia, right? Like why do we not believe in black people enough to actually take seriously their political projects? And why do we only believe in it after the fact when, when we're like, oh shit, maybe they actually did do something. So, but on the other hand, there's a kind of nostalgia for the third world that I think is happening today, which is this attempt to um, reconstruct the third world as is, as if you know the third world didn't come with a set of problems of, that we could associate with authoritarianism and anti-democratic tendencies, right? So this attempt to be nostalgic for the third world um, is also deeply pro problematic. I think in third world historical, we're not just trying to reproduce you know, that third world of yesteryear, but we're trying to um, fatigue that project while maybe staying true to what the project of the third world was, the spirit of the, of the third world, rather than just the empirics of the third world. Yeah. 
or I should go answer the rest of the questions because we don't have much time. <laughs> Arash, there was one question about diaspora. I'm just uh, for the for respect. I'm going to read the last question, which actually ties. Maybe it's a good wrap up to the discussion as well. It is about to the extent that the concept of revolution has its roots in European reformation and enlightenment. On what resources might Iranian, Ethiopian, or indeed other global South, South actors draw in their efforts to reconceptualize it? Foucault's argument was that Shiism was just such a resource for the Iranian revolution in the first place, what would the stakes be for similar parallel moves of counter-colonial conceptions of revolution today? So I let you figure out how you want to go about this in three minutes. My colleague might disagree, but um, I uh, have, I actually don't think my colleague will disagree. I have um, considerable skepticism toward um, alternate epistemologies um, because I think it directs our attention to the what content. And what third world historical as a project is suggesting and outlining, I think, is that we must pay attention to form. So it's not that we need to go to Shiism in order to find some alternate resource in order to be anti-colonial. Rather, it's how are we actually living? How are we enacting life um, on a daily basis? How are we interacting? How are we creating? How are we being with one another in community in a different way? And that's where you find the novelty. And this is where I think perhaps the, the, the slogan Zan Zendegi Azadi is, is really powerful, the Zendegi part, the emphasis on life. How are we living, enacting, being? How are we you know, doing things differently in a formal manner? That's the potential for something different. Um, that's where you see the anti-colonial as opposed to trying to find an alternate epistemology in Shiism as Foucault um, once did. Sure, that's great. Do you want me to say more, Arash, on that particular point? Or, or did you want to just go ahead with the diaspora question? I mean, my only thing, I do agree with you, Arash, it is about how we're living. But I also think like the, the search for the alternative epistemologies is problematic because what I think the student movement in Ethiopia from the 60s and 70s shows us is like how much they're in dialogue with Marxism, um, not as a derivative discourse, but they're, they see themselves as, as equals, right? Um, and we can't just say this is a Western conversation. They are remaking Marxism. Um, in Ethiopia in order to help understand their situation, right? So um, seeing Marxism just as a kind of import into Ethiopia is deeply problematic um, because Ethiopia has never been separate from the rest of the world. And so it's bringing in these, it, it's, it's engaging a conversation with the world. It's not just, um, you know, this little entity somewhere in the middle of Africa that's never had a conversation with anybody before, right? So, so just to say that. Um, we have unfortunately reached 4 p.m. Um, if you guys have any final comments to wrap this up, we have two more questions. What I'm going to do is I'm going to write them down and I'm going to share those questions with our speakers, both very important questions. And then if they want, they can you can you can kind of engage in these conversations outside. I just also think that this shows that there is there is need for more spaces like this for us to get together and have just conversations. But if any of you want to kind of come in, offer some last points, then we can wrap it up at five past four. It might be useful to talk about the um, diaspora question a bit. Arash, do you want to talk about the diaspora question at all? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, the diaspora is, you know, a part of these conflicts in, in Ethiopia. Um, and, and it's also why I think like this inside and outside thing is not a particularly useful way to think about Ethiopia. I mean, where I would say, where does Ethiopia begin and end, right? Like, you know, people are like, well, there is this, this kind of entity called Ethiopia and, and the boundaries are clear, but I don't think they are, um, you know, and that this is where the anti-imperialist argument becomes really problematic because it sees this sovereignty of Ethiopia as like, you know, within this territorially bounded sort of area. Um, but given the ways in which the diaspora has been so active, I would say the diaspora, the largest diaspora is in in DC, the other one is in Minnesota and in, in um, Arash's hometown. They've definitely constituted the, the discourse and the conflicts that make up Ethiopia today. So definitely I would say, you know, Ethiopia extends, I, I, you know, to, to these places, right? Um, and I, I think it's more useful to get rid of the, the inside outside dichotomy. It, it doesn't feel particularly productive to me.
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ara? Yeah. yeah, in the Iranian case, I mean, I think we have to admit that there are very real um, and powerful forces that are um, mobilizing and animating the diaspora in order to make certain kinds of arguments that would undermine the Islamic Republic um, as a state. Um, but I think it's too reductive to say that the diaspora doesn't know or the diaspora is detached or the diaspora is simply that. And I think that um, one important thing that's happened, at least in terms of knowledge production and understanding, is that um, people have come to realize that the diaspora is a changing phenomenon, that a lot of people have recently migrated from Iran who've had um, experiences there. Um, and they uh, have valid points to make, and we should be listening to one another in that regard. Um, and, you know, even if th those points sometimes uh, come across in, you know, ways that are, quote unquote, uncivil um, and are bound up with uh, some of these larger powers, that's okay. Uh, we should still have that conversation. Thank you very much, Arash and Eleni. Um, you just gave me the idea that maybe at the Middle East Center, um, we should just continue these conversations. I don't know, call them something and have a series about rethinking revolutions and protest movements and wars across, across the globe. Um, thank you for your time and insights. I hope everybody goes and reads the volume that you've produced and particularly the introduction that you have written uh, to that volume. On that note, I also thank our participants and attendees here. I have uh, shared the questions that you raised that we didn't get a chance to respond with our speakers. I also wanted to thank um, the Middle East Center at London School of Economics and also Nadine who um, um, really put care and energy into this event. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a great day. Bye-bye.